How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, some of you have, some of you have not. Uh, his name was John Bunyan. He is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, not to be confused with Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox babe. All right, John Bunyan lived in England. He was born in 1628, 391 years ago. And he was born to a very poor family. His dad, Thomas, was a tinker. How many of you know what a tinker is? Well, a tinker was a person who made and repaired pots and pans. So he was in a very poor family. He was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, he came to faith later in life. His father-in-law gave him two Christian books, and he would read them and come under conviction, being uh, overwhelmed with his own sin. And then he would overhear a conversation, uh, four ladies who were talking about spiritual things and sharing their own testimonies. He would go on to leave the Church of England and join their church. He would come to faith, though, reading a commentary by Martin Luther. It was a commentary on the book of Galatians. He would then become a field preacher. He went into the ministry. And you may say, well, what is a field preacher? It's a guy who preaches out in the field. So it would be like us going outside and us just setting up a service and I just preaching in the open air. Now, this was illegal to do in England, uh, these open air services. He was arrested in 1660 at the age of 32. How many years would he be in prison for preaching open air? Any guesses? How long would you be in prison for? 12 years he would be in prison for. Um, he was given the opportunity to be released from prison after three months. And if he agreed to not preach at all, and he refused. What's funny is one of his jailers would secretly let him out to go to meetings knowing that he would return. <laughs> so he would be let out, but he would come back. Now, while he was in prison is when he started writing the classic Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a man named Christian. And he's on his way to the celestial city. He's on his way to heaven. And it's about all the things that he encounters on this spiritual journey as a follower of God. Uh, this is an allegory. It's a story. It's a picture um, with hidden meetings that give a moral. And that's what an allegory is. And he wrote it in the language of the people. It was not written as a children's book. Many times people see this as a children's book. That's not the main purpose it was written. Uh, he would be released from prison in 1672 and become a pastor of the Baptist Church of Bedford. And uh, five years later is when he would complete the book, Pilgrim's Progress. It would be published in 1678 when he was 50 years old, and nine years later, he would die at the age of 59. Pilgrim's Progress is an incredible work. It has been translated into more than 200 languages. There are 1,300 editions of it, and there's many different books that you can get on Pilgrim's Progress. Here's just a couple of them. Um, this one is a classic put out by Hendrickson, and it has uh, scriptures with it, some of the scriptures that you can see. Uh, there are children's versions of it. There are Bible studies of it that you can go through with questions and answers. Uh, there's, more, there's ones that are more like a novel as well. And so I encourage you, if you don't have a copy, get out there and get a copy, read through it. And the movie is actually in the theaters right now, an animated version. And I would encourage you to go see that as well. Uh, one of the amazing things about Pilgrim's Progress, it's never been out of print. Never been out of print. It's considered the second most popular book in history outside of the Bible. There's actually more copies sold of Pilgrim's Progress than all of the Harry Potter novels combined worldwide. Um, Pilgrim's Progress 
has influenced writers such as Mark Twain, John Steinbeck, C.S. Lewis. And my prayer is that it will influence you and it will influence me. Now, you may say, well, why are you preaching through this? It's not the Bible. True, it's not the Bible, but it's full of the Bible. And so we will be looking at the scriptures behind the story. We will not be looking at the story itself, but the scriptures behind it. And we're going to take this journey with Christian, and it's going to be from a biblical point of view. One of the things I was really encouraged about, and as I asked my assistant Nancy, I said, can we see if any other pastors who ever have ever done this? Because I really wanted to look at this from a scriptural point of view. And she did some research, and she found out that Charles Haddon Spurgeon actually did this on a midweek service like we're doing. So that was just kind of a, an affirmation uh, for Charles Haddon Spurgeon, it was his second favorite book outside of the Bible, and he read it that he believed more than a hundred times. That's how popular it was for him and important it was for him. Uh, I just want to let you know up front, every message is going to be different. Some of the messages as we go through this book will be much more topical and we'll look at a lot more scripture. Uh, One or two or some of the messages may be more focused on just one or two passages and we'll dive more deeply into those passages. Now, I want to let you know, I'm not going to read the book to you. Okay, this is not a bedtime story hour. All right. Uh, I'm going to hope that you have some familiarity with the book and we are going to really dive into the scriptures behind it. I will be referring to the book. Um, but we won't be reading the book. First thing I want you to do is write down this, uh, this first title, or the first point. Number one, we are pilgrims who need to make progress. Say it with me. We are pilgrims who need to make progress. Obviously, it is called Pilgrim's Progress. And we are pilgrims. And, and we see this in the Great Hall of Faith. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and, and write these passages down, Hebrews chapter 11, we see all of these believers who live their lives on this earth. And, and this is what we read. Uh, all these died in faith. And the heartbeat of Hebrews 11 is by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And without receiving their promises, having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They're pilgrims. Those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would not have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is not our home. We are going to the celestial city. We are going to heaven. We are just passing through. And so we can't get our eyes on the things of this world. We are pilgrims. So this world is not our home and we should not get overly attached to it. We are strangers. We are exiles on this planet. Now, 1 Peter 2.11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Again, we see those words. And then he says this, To abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. So don't act like this world since this world is not your home. This world is not my home and so I am not to act like this world. So fight against the fleshly lust as we are pilgrims going through this world. Now we're pilgrims on a journey and we're going where? To the celestial city, just like Christian. And Philippians 3.20 says this, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm an American I love this nation, but I am first and foremost not a citizen of America. I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven. So we are pilgrims. Pilgrim, 
is to make progress. So let's make progress. And I want to give you a couple reasons why there's no reason not to. Number one is Philippians 1.6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is God's promise to you. I am going to help you live this Christian life. I'm going to take you through this Christian life. You are, you are a pilgrim traveling through, and the work that God started in your heart, he is going to complete it. There's sometimes we think, does God really want anything to do with me, and I've blown it again? And yes, he loves you. He's not given up on you. He is there for you, and he's going to keep working in you. So stay on that straight and narrow. Philippians 2.12 says this. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now understand this. He doesn't say work for your salvation. I, I can't save myself and neither can you. And we know no good works can save us. We're told to work out our salvation. Well, what is the difference? If I'm not supposed to work for my salvation because I can't, what does it mean to work out my salvation? Well, the context says this. Just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So the way we work out our salvation is through obedience. So if there's an area in your life or my life where we're struggling with obedience, we've got to get this under control because this is the way we work out our salvation. We grow in our obedience with God. We follow God more fully. So you're a pilgrim on this earth and you want to make progress. That means you need to look at your life right now. And is there any area where you're being disobedient? And you've needed to get that under control and, and, and start walking in obedience. And then it says this with fear and trembling. So that means I need to have a reverence for my God as a pilgrim making progress through this life on my way to heaven. So the first thing we learn about this book, and this is just an introduction to the book, understand that, is that pilgrims need to make progress. Secondly, not all Christians, quote unquote, are truly Christian. Not all Christians are truly Christian. His name in the book is Christian, and yet at the beginning of the book, he is not yet a Christian. Like so many people in this world, like so many people in our nation, like so many people who were in church last week at Easter. So many people call themselves Christian, but they are not yet Christian. They are religious, but they are unsaved. And we need to understand this as true believers. You and I have friends we have coworkers, we have neighbors, we have family members that we think are Christian, but they are not. And they think they're Christian, but they are not. We've got to get away from believing religious people because they go to such and such a church are on their way to heaven. They may not be on their way to heaven. And we have to deal with this, re this, this reality and, and not just assume because someone is religious that they are Christians. We've got to stop assuming religious people are saved people. And, and I love the fact that Pastor Mickey and Pastor Gary are so good at teaching us this and modeling us this, modeling this for us. Two diagnostic questions we must get in the habit of asking people. Here's the first one. If you were to die today, do you know for certain 
you would go to heaven. I'll say it again, write it down. If you were to die today, do you know for certain you would go to heaven? We've got to ask people this question to find out if they truly are Christians or not. Because many don't know if they would go to heaven. Now, now it may be that they are going to heaven and they're just immature Christians. But it may also be a clue that they don't truly know God as their savior. Here's the second question. If you did die today and met God at the gate of heaven. If you did die today and met God at the gate of heaven and he asked you. Why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I'll repeat it. If you did die today and met God at the gate of heaven and he asked you. Why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And what would most of the people in this world say? Tell me. Because I'm a good person. And not a single one of us is good enough to go to heaven. So if someone answers you that way and says, well, I'm a good question, or I'm a good person, it it pretty much answers the question that more than likely they are not a true believer. And we have got to be able to share the true gospel with them because no one is good in the eyes of God. We are all sinful. We are all depraved. We are all wicked. And we all need Jesus. Now, I want to give you some verses to remind us that not all quote unquote Christians are Christians. First John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Now, I just saw a funny meme on this. It was a text group and it was labeled the 12 disciples. And Jesus texts in and says, one of you will betray me today. And Peter texts back, not me, Lord, who? And then it says, Judas Iscariot has left the group. (laughs) There are people who leave the group, so to speak. There are people who used to be in our church for years. And we thought they were Christians. And they've left the group. And here's the thing. They've never been back to any group, not just this church. The greatest example we have of this is Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. Judas was in ministry for three years. Judas interacted with Jesus and sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. And and Judas witnessed the miracles of the Lord. And Judas was not saved. How do we know this? Because Jesus called him in John 17, the son of perdition. John 17, 12, and I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. That's the son of judgment, the son of hell. Judas was not a true believer in God. And we need to understand not all quote unquote Christians are Christian. Here's a third thing we learn. Conviction is necessary for conversion. Say that with me. Conviction is necessary for conversion. And in the story Christian is burdened. He's burdened with this weight of sin and it grows heavier and heavier upon him. And there's the struggle in his soul with this burden and his emotions are raw. And as you read this book, you see that that Christian at the beginning is weeping and he's trembling and he doesn't know what to do as he feels the weight of his sin. And we have a great passage in scripture where we see the weight of sin and it's David feeling the weight of his sin. And although David is a God follower, we still see an example of 
the severity and the burden of sin. Psalm 38, starting in verse 4. For my iniquities are gone over my head. I'm drowning. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I'm bent over, greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. That is a picture of the burden of sin. And, and, and sin, as it goes unconfessed in my life and your life, it, it affects us emotionally. It affects us physically. It's the consequences of carrying the burden of sin and not giving it over to our Lord. And here's the good news. Jesus can take it away. He can take the burden of sin away. And so many in this world walk around with this weight and this burden all day, every day. And there is a God that can free them if they would only come to him. Do you remember when that burden fell off your guy's back? Do you remember when you came to faith in Jesus? I, I was 17 years old and I got on my knees in my bedroom and I just cried out to God. Confused, lost, not having a clue in this life. And I'll never forget that day when God took the burden off my back. How old were you? Do you remember? Do you remember where you were? Who wants to share? How old were you when you, when you came to faith? Eight years old. You were eight, so young. Who else? Fourteen. I, I know there, there were others that uh, just recently talked to me. Uh, one lady said I was 28 and I was in a bar. <laughs> Another guy said he was 21 and it was in a pool. One guy said he was 18 and he was out in the woods by himself. It's just great to hear the testimonies of people and where they were and how old they were when that burden just fell off their back. And, and you who were saved earlier in life when you were three or four or five or six or eight, when however old you were, you have just as much a testimony as anybody else. And the miracle of salvation should never be lessened, no matter how old you are. So, so he's burdened with this weight. And then we see the conviction is there. And, and we need to have conviction if we're truly to be saved or converted. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how many have sinned? Every single one of us, okay? We're all part of this. And, and Isaiah 64.6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind Take us away. And so we've all sinned. And, and I love how he points out that even all of our good deeds could never outweigh all of our bad. And so it's not good deeds that save us. Our good deeds are like a filthy garment in the eyes of a holy God. It's him and him alone that can save. There's the conviction of sin. And I believe there's the conviction of judgment. And you see that in Christian as he travels, as he tries to figure out this life. And we know the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. But Hebrews 9, 27 says this. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes what? Judgment. Christian knew judgment was coming. We must feel the weight of the judgment of sin if we are to come to faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says this. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is judgment coming. 
and the unbeliever will fall into the hands of the living God where he will face judgment. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, do not turn away from the God, the only one who can save you from your sin. There is escape if you come to him, but there is no escape if you turn from him. So if you pass up this salvation, you face condemnation. And Christian in Pilgrim's Progress knows this and it weighs heavy on him. There's the conviction of sin and the conviction of judgment. And there must be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. John 16 verse 8 says this, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness, because I go to the father and you will no longer see me and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the spirit of God doesn't let us remain indifferent. And this is important. The spirit of God will not let me remain indifferent with my sin. He points it out and lets me know that is sin. He doesn't let me remain indifferent when it comes to righteousness, the spirit of God draws a line and says, this is right and this is wrong. And that's where the world in which we live doesn't have a clue because the world in which we live blurs the line and it's, there are no wrongs and there are no rights and you can do whatever feels good to you. And God says, no, there is a right and there is a wrong. And the spirit convicts us of that. And not only that, he convicts us of judgment, that there is a coming judgment. Now, listen carefully. There is a coming judgment for unbelievers at the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20. But there is also a judgment coming for me as a Christian and for you who are believers. We will stand before the Lord and give an account for this life. And so that's a good conviction to have as we are pilgrims going through this life on our way to the celestial city. So pilgrims need to make progress and not all Christians are truly Christian and conviction is necessary for conversion. And then finally, never underestimate the power and importance of the book. Never underestimate the power and importance of this book, the book, the Bible. And as you, as you read the life of pilgrim, he, he's looking in the book, he's carrying the book, he's holding the book. And if you see pictures of Pilgrim's Progress and artistic renderings, oftentimes he's holding the Bible. Pages are open and he's, he's scanning it, he's looking at it, he's reading it, and he's grasping the reality of the truth of God. This world does not live in reality. They live by their feelings. And the book of God, the Bible, gives us true reality. This is what life is really all about and so be people of the book. Be people of reality. And what does the book do? Well, it's powerful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any what? Two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is the power of the book. It reads my mind. It reads my soul. It reads my motives. It reads my heart. It goes deep into who I am as a person. 
And then verse 13 says, and there's no creature hidden from his, that's God's sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees it all. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. The word of God is that powerful. Spend time in the word of God and let it read you. Now, we read in Galatians 3.24 that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so the word of God, the laws of God are used by God to lead us because the word teaches us we can't live up to it and that it takes faith to be justified. And then, of course, we see other verses of the importance of the word of God all throughout our life. In Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my what? My feet and a light to my path. And so that's what the word of God is. It, it illuminates in front of me so that I know where to go and how to act and what to say and what to do. It's the importance of the word of God being a lamp to my feet and a light to my path that I don't have to walk in darkness in this world. I have the light of the word of God. Second Peter chapter one, verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And so the word of God is a lamp in this dark world. It illuminates. And not only is it a lamp in this dark world, the word of God is a lamp for my dark heart because at times it needs illumination. And it needs to reveal to me where in my life I'm not right and what needs to be done. Every single morning when I get up, one of the things I do is I turn the lights on because it's dark. My guess is every single day when you get up, you turn a light on. Every single day, you and I need to turn the light of God's word on. Every single day. For some of you, you walk in dark all week long. And then you let Pastor Scott turn the light on during a sermon on Sundays. And then you walk in dark all week long until next Sunday or two Sundays from there. You've got to get in the habit of turning the light on for yourself. Every day you wake up, you turn the light on. Every day you let God speak to you. Every single day you let God illumine the path for you. Don't go all week long walking in the dark, bumping into things, making mistakes with your life. Every single solitary day, turn the light on. Turn the light on. Turn the light on the light on. No more sitting in the dark in this life, Christian. Let's make progress. Let's turn the light on. And that's pilgrim's progress number one. Pilgrims need to make progress. Not all Christians are truly Christian. Ask the questions, find out. Conviction is necessary for conversion. And never underestimate the power and the importance of the book. Turn the light on.